So in July of 1970, 30% of Americans believed that the Apollo 11 mission to the moon was faked. Today, in 2023, only 61% of people believe with any confidence that the moon landing was real. That means about 38, 39% still believe with some level of uncertainty that it either didn't happen or part of it was faked or they're just not convinced it happened at all. That was just 54 years ago. There's a half ton of moon rock and moon dust that was brought back. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands of people who participated in the Apollo 11 mission from the astronauts themselves to technicians, to engineers, to the maintenance staff, to those who helped build the actual space uh, uh, device that went to the moon. There are witnesses to the event, and of course, there's actually two astronauts, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, who were there and stepped foot onto the moon themselves. All of the conspiracy theories have been refuted and answered and debunked, yet people still disbelieve something that factually happened. One out of every four in a 50-state survey, one out of every four people under the age of 39 either has never even heard of the Holocaust, believes that the Jews were responsible, not the Nazis for the Holocaust, or believe the entire Holocaust story to be fake. Now, you might wonder what in the world that has to do on Easter Sunday, 2023, with you and I here today. What it has to do with us is the capacity of people to choose doubt and disbelief, even in the face of factual evidence, that we would sometimes rather cover something with a thick layer, a thick blanket, a covering of doubt and disbelief than to believe in something we're not comfortable with. Yet we're gathering with three billion other people on this day to celebrate the most astronomically important event of all of humankind, more important than the moon landing, more noteworthy even than the Holocaust, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there is a majority of the world who does not believe this story, and some of them are right here today. Now, hearing this, is I'm putting out a story that we're celebrating. Now, you might have been invited by somebody and you're begrudgingly here. We're glad you're here anyway. I hope the donut was good. I hope the pizza will be good afterwards. I hope your kids are having an awesome time petting llamas and baby cows and goats right now at the petting zoo. Oh, I know all the adults want to go down there too. Knock it off. You're stuck here. Listen to me. If you don't pay attention, I just keep going and going and going. The reality is, though, that even if you were raised in church and you have a background of faith, this story may be one that's insurmountable for your ability to release belief and faith instead of disbelief and doubt. Now, there are people who believe the earth is flat. There are people that believe we didn't land on the moon. There are people that believe in all kinds of conspiracies. 
And then there are people who simply won't believe in something that's right in front of them. And before we start uh, uh, maybe becoming a bit too critical of them or don't categorize ourselves as them, I want you to remember something. It really doesn't matter what three billion other people believe or what somebody else believes about a thing. It really comes down to what you believe, at least about this story. I guess on some level I care what you believe about the Holocaust and some level I care what you believe about the moon landing because it maybe helps me understand the way you think and understand things in your life. But really this, this is what we're here talking about today. And it doesn't matter that I believe it and it doesn't matter that the people who brought you believe it or the people that raised you believe it or anyone else of the three billion people believe it. It really only matters what you believe because listen, here's the facts that even if factually Jesus did raise from the dead, it won't matter if your disbelief and, if disbelief and doubt keep him buried in the grave. He's not alive to you. It doesn't matter if the moon landing actually happened. It didn't happen in your life because you refused to believe it. I want to give you some encouragement, by the way. Jesus' closest disciples, his best friends, his students, his followers they had difficulty believing this as well. So I don't want you to feel too badly, even if you've been a follower of Christ all your life or you've been raised in a home of faith all of your life or maybe you're walking into this place for the first time, attending church for the first time in your life, your disbelief is not uncommon. Your doubt is not uncommon. But I do want you to know this, it is overcomable. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus' own disciples. Some of them almost didn't believe. I'm gonna warn you though of the three things that are gonna stand in the way of you believing a life transformational truth today. If you don't have your notes, you can grab them and pull them out. You can also go to the Summit Church app. It's quick to find on iOS or Android devices. You just put in Summit Church Lincoln. You'll see that Three Mountains logo. I may never believe in the resurrection of Jesus if, number one, I won't believe what I'm not expecting to happen. I won't believe what I'm not expecting to happen. So, listen, disbelief and doubt aren't as much a reaction to something as they are a filter through which we see everything. Especially if we have, in our estimation, things figured out. So, so it's not as if something happens and then we decide whether we'll believe it or not. We tend to meet things with disbelief and doubt at first and allow themselves to be proven to us. So as some of you guys know, I was born and raised in Missouri and our state motto is, does anybody know? The show me state. And so essentially our state motto is, yeah, we don't really believe you. That's kind of, we're just very, very skeptical, yeah. Tell me a story, I don't believe that. Doesn't matter, I don't believe you. You don't have to be raised in Missouri to be skeptical. Skepticism is something that you and I use to often protect ourselves from feeling or looking stupid or being taken advantage of. I recently heard a, a podcast in which the actor Kevin Bacon shared that uh, he and his wife, Kara Sedgwick, who's also a, an actress, that they lost almost all of their family's money in the Bernie Madoff uh, uh, Ponzi scheme. 
And uh, he wasn't trying to get anybody to feel sorry for him. He said, uh, there's others who have had it way worse uh, than us. He said, but there's a lesson to be learned. We, we sort of knew it was too good to be true, yet we invested anyway. And so after losing all their money and essentially having to start over, I would imagine this, that his financial and investment strategy is far more skeptical now. Far more cautious to believe when somebody makes big promises. So it's not inconceivable then that people would have a hard time listening to Jesus tell stories of his death that he knew when he was going to die and not only knew he was going to die, but he also began to talk about his own resurrection three days later. Listen to what it says in Mark 9, 30 through 32. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee where he tried, this is Jesus, tried to avoid all publicity in order to spend some time with his disciples teaching them. He would say to them, I, the Messiah, am going to be betrayed and killed And then three days later, I'll return to life again. But they didn't understand and were afraid to ask him what he meant. It's so easy for us today to judge the disciples as being just a bunch of dummies who didn't have faith. I want you to imagine yourself though, in that moment, here is this teacher, this prophet, you've seen him heal, you've seen him do amazing things, and he's saying all the kind of things that, that, that the other religious teachers aren't saying, but he's now saying something really, really hard to swallow. He's gonna be betrayed, which means somebody close to him is going to turn on him, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to be uh, raised from the dead three days later. And I can just see one of the disciples going, Ah, uh, did you ca- did I did you catch that? Um, he's he said he's going to die, and then he's going to come back to life. And I'd be like, yeah, obviously he was being hyperbolic and like symbolic, and it's a metaphor, you idiot, <laughs> right? Why don't you ask him about it? Just see what he meant. Like that would kind of be your posture is like, I'm not asking him because he's Jesus and I don't want to look like an idiot because we've all seen Peter ask dumb questions and then get scolded in front of the crowd. So they're like, I'm not doing that. They were afraid to ask because they didn't understand. Listen to what Matthew 16, 21 through 22 says. From that time, Jesus began telling his followers that he must go to Jerusalem. He explained that the older Jewish leaders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the law would make him suffer many things. And he told his followers that he must be killed. Now this is incredibly difficult when you've given your whole life to following him. You've left your family, you've left responsibilities, you left the plans of your life behind. And then on the third day, he continued to teach them that he would be raised from death. Then Peter took Jesus away from the other followers to take him, to talk to him alone. And he began to criticize him and he said, God, save you from those sufferings, Lord. That will never happen to you. Two things right here. Peter seems to take Jesus at his word. Maybe he doesn't even doubt Jesus. Maybe he doesn't misunderstand, but two things. Number one, he chooses not to accept truth as it is. And he just says, I I pray that God prevents you from this. And then number two, he doesn't even address the resurrection. 
He just says, you don't get to die, therefore the resurrection is moot. Sometimes you and I, when we're uncomfortable with the truth, we just choose to pretend it's not there or we just pretend that we have control over whether it's true or not. Can I tell you this? The resurrection of Jesus happened whether you believe it or not. The moon landing happened whether you believe it or not. There's so many things we place our faith in. Tell me, how do you know the Battle of Gettysburg happened? Go there to where the Battle of Gettysburg takes pl- took place. There is nothing left that would give you any evidence whatsoever. It doesn't look like the battlefield the day it happened. There aren't people walking around who were in the battle. So it's just been stories that have been told and recorded and passed on. Yet when it comes to certain stories, stories like this, we have a very difficult time pulling back from our doubt and our disbelief. Number two is this, I may never believe in the resurrection of Jesus if I won't believe that the impossible has become possible. Now I'm enjoying the cold, but I'm imagining at this point it's probably frigid for you if maybe someone could hop up and just tap her a couple degrees. I don't mind it at all, but I don't want to hear about it afterwards. I may never believe in the resurrection of Jesus if I won't believe the impossible has become possible. So like four or five years ago, Lisa called me, I was at the office and my cell phone rang and I, 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 owe it, I, I don't take calls during meetings or anything like that um, because it's rude. I wanna be with the person that I'm meeting with. But if it's my wife or my kids, I always take that because they usually know I'm in a meeting um, uh, and, and I, I wanna make sure I'm there for my family. So I picked up the phone and Lisa's talking a mile a minute. And I, I can't understand her. And she's talking about somebody coming to the house and, and there's paint. And, and I just said, honey, you gotta slow down. Tell, what, what are you, I thought maybe one of the, the, the kids were hurt or a, a hawk had come and taken one of the dogs from the yard. It was very, very chaotic on the phone. And, and I, I said, what, what is it that you're talking about? We wanted, there's a Facebook competition and I put our names in and we then, and they said we could be the winner and they said they'd be here within a half hour. And I just go, oh, Lisa, you gave them our information? What in the world are you, honey, we didn't win any competition. It's a marketing scam. No, they said that we were one of three finalists and that they would be at the house of the people who won within like 30 to 45 minutes. So I'm thinking, they're gonna murder my wife, so I need to go home. So I pick up, I run home, and I kinda just, you know, lovingly told her how adorable her naivety is, and that, that I love that she believes total strangers who say they're gonna give us a $6,000 exterior house painting thing for free, no strings attached, and that she believed that we were one of three finalists, but I, I wanted to be there with her when her dreams were shattered. I wanted, to, I wanted to see the look on her face and be able to say, I'm always right and you're wrong. Believe me and don't believe anybody else. And, uh, and so there was about 15 minutes left of this time window they were supposed to be there. And she started kind of coming into that realization because the time came and went. And the 15 minutes had now passed of that total 45 minute window and, 
And she goes, I just really thought we won. I just really, it was, they were like so convincing. And I was like, I know, honey, but I was like, it, best case scenario, they're selling our information to every scammer and, and spam marketer right now. Worst case scenario, they're gonna kill us in our sleep tonight. So like, <laughs> don't do that anymore. And that's when the doorbell rang. <laughs> and we opened it up to find a sign with balloons and a person with a camera and the lady who ran the company standing on our front porch. And they were there to kill us. That's true. <laughs> they looked innocent enough, but they started stabbing. No, uh, we won. We won the house. They painted it, no strings attached. It was an amazing kind of thing. Yeah, it was really cool. So I tell you that story because my experience had led me to believe those things simply don't happen. They do happen. They just hadn't ever happened to me. And because of my lack of encountering things that felt impossible, I had just deemed them impossible. That's not true, honey. This is not happening. It's not going to happen. And it did now, I realize that's not the resurrection of somebody from the dead. But I do want you to remember that impossible things are only impossible because we haven't personally experienced them. Things happen all the time that can't be explained. Let me read this passage to you from Mark 16, 9 through 13, it was early on Sunday morning when Jesus came back to life, just as he said he would, and the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She found the disciples wet-eyed with grief and exclaimed, now listen, that means they're mourning, and on Sunday morning, they say it's the first day of the week, Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, right? We practice Sabbath on Sunday now, but first day of the week, so Sunday morning, they had no expectation Jesus was going to raise from the dead because they're still mourning. And she exclaimed that she had seen Jesus and he was alive, but they didn't believe her. Later that day, he appeared to two who were walking from, two of the followers, who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. But they didn't recognize him at first because he had changed his appearance. When they finally realized who he was, they rushed back to Jerusalem to tell the others, but no one believed them. Now, here's a situation in which they had witnessed their savior, their teacher, their prophet, the one they believed to be God in flesh, succumb to this brutal, agonizing, murderous, torturous crucifixion in front of not only them, who tried to protect him, who wanted to stand in the way, but found themselves too weak-kneed and scared of reprisal and, and, and consequence in their own life. So they scattered and there they saw Jesus and they're dealing with their guilt and they see this brutal, violent, angry, murderous crucifixion that no one comes back from. They watch the soldier go by and put a dagger a sword in the side of Jesus to make sure he's dead, to puncture a lung so that he can't breathe anymore. And they take his body from the cross 
and they bury it themselves. And so, if somebody were to come along after a relative's funeral of yours and say, ha ha, grandma is in the family room (laughs) watching Jeopardy. You would think they're crazy. You would think they'd lost their mind in grief. And it's not necessarily who is telling you the news. It's what they're telling you. Maybe you can understand and sympathize and empathize and, 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 and give some sort of, a, of, of pass to somebody who thinks they see someone who they desperately don't want to be dead. They think they see them and, and you say, he was beaten beyond recognition. His face was swollen and bloody and the crown of thorns had made his head swell and his face was contorted and his body was so beaten and bruised. How in the world could you even recognize what he looked like when we put him in the grave? He was a broken shell of himself. And some new version of Jesus is walking around. It's difficult to believe the impossible, which is somebody coming back from the dead, when you know what you know about death. Because you've never seen it. And I've never seen it. And after all, if we've never seen it, it can't happen. And that brings us to the third and final truth is, I may never believe in the resurrection of Jesus if I won't believe what I can't see with my own eyes. So back to my hometown of Missouri, the show me state, you don't have to have been born and raised there in order for you to live in that state of mind. I I should know this and I'm sure I learned it in grade school where we ultimately, where that originated from the, the skeptical nature of that region. But I don't know that it's been contained there. I don't think it's exclusive to Missouri, the boundaries of our state. I think it's transcended and gone across the nation. So we filter almost everything through doubt. We have a posture of disbelief. Unless, of course, we see undeniable proof with our own eyes, right? And then we'll believe. If you can just show me, if you can just put the proof in front of me, then I'll believe. There's kind of a game I played with my boys growing up. Um, They would say something and I would say, no, that's not true. And I was sincere. I was like, that's not true. And they go, yeah, dad, it is true. And I'd go, it's not true. And they go, okay, I'll look it up. And they would look it up and show it to me and I'd go, no. They would just be like, I don't care that you showed me the proof. It's still no, I'm dad, I'm right. It just... That thing's not true. Even seeing with my own eyes, it was hard for me to accept certain things as being true that I wanted on some level, I needed on some level to believe that they weren't true. Jesus, remember, his closest disciples, his closest followers had seen Jesus do the impossible already. There was a a synagogue leader named Jairus 
who against his own religion, violating uh, the Jewish custom and, and associating with Jesus, who was this revolutionary, seemingly leading people away from the Jewish faith, in reality, leading them away from the bondage of the law, but Jesus teaching things and, and, and the Jewish community abandoning Jesus, he hears that Jesus is not only a prophet and a teacher and that he speaks with the voice of God, but that he is a healer, that people who are lame, who are paralyzed, they walk, people who are blind, they see. Those with leprosy, their bodies are clean and without a single sore on them, and he runs to Jesus because his daughter is dying. And Jesus tells him, As someone runs up and says, it's too late, come home. We've begun mourning, your daughter's dead. He agonizes with this. His disciples look on, strangers look on, wonder how Jesus will respond. And Jesus says, be at peace, your daughter's gonna be just fine, she's just sleeping, let's go. He goes home, he begins to yell at those and that region and in that time, and it still happens today, there are mourners who come in and and they wail and they sing songs and they're paid to be there. They're paid almost like a funeral director to help you through the grief and and they just wail and, and cry and they sort of set the atmosphere and Jesus walks in and says, what are you even doing here? Get out, leave. Mystified, they walk out, but some people linger behind and he said, let's go see your daughter and he walks and and the mother's grieving and people are crying and Jesus touches her hand and he says, daughter, it's time to get up. She opens her eyes, comes back from the dead in front of people who don't follow Jesus, in front of people who don't know Jesus. There's a widow whose son has died And Jesus prays over him. He comes back from the dead. He's close, very close with the family. Lazarus and his sister, his two sisters, who are furious at Jesus because they've sent word to find the disciples and find Jesus and tell him that his best friend Lazarus is very, very sick and he must come. And Jesus decides to chill for a couple more days. He said, we're good, he'll be fine. He comes and finds his best friend. They're furious, everyone's wailing and crying and wondering why Jesus didn't care enough to show up on time because he could have healed his best friend, but clearly too selfish, too caught up in his own ministry to do the right thing. And Jesus calls his friend by name to come out of the tomb and they say, don't, Jesus, this is terrible. Don't roll the stone away. It's, his body's gonna smell at this point. He's decomposing. Why would you be so cruel? And Lazarus steps out of the grave. They had all witnessed this. Yet they don't believe Jesus has come back from the grave. He's already demonstrated three times in front of them that he has the ability to overcome even the power of death. Listen to what it says in Luke 24, 35 through 43. Then the two from Emmaus, these are the two that were on the road, that came back and told the disciples, this is another account of that. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And they said, we don't believe you. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there in the room among them and greeted them. But the whole group was terrible 
terribly frightened thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why do you doubt that it's really I? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's I, myself. Touch me, make sure that I'm not a ghost, for ghosts do not have bodies, and as you can see that I do. As he spoke, he held out his hands for them to see the marks of the nails and showed them the wounds in his feet. Still they stood there undecided, filled with joy and doubt. And then he asked them, do you have anything here? I love it, Jesus needs a snack. (laughs) And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. What's also funny is on the road to Emmaus, it says that Jesus was eating bread as he talked to them. He's like, first of all, the day I got crucified, they didn't feed me anything at all. It's pretty hard getting crucified. Then uh, I don't need to mention, you don't eat when you're in the grave for three days, so kind of hungry. But I love that he's doing it to demonstrate because ghosts don't need to eat, spirits don't need to eat, and so here they are who witnessed with their own eyes that Jesus was capable of overcoming death, yet they still did not believe. You can see things with your own eyes and still not believe because that's how powerful doubt and disbelief can be in keeping you from holding on to a truth that can transform your life. That's how powerful doubt can be. Now, there was one disciple who wasn't there. He comes in and they begin to tell him this story. This is where we close John 20, 24 through, well, I have, yeah, 24 through 29. Thomas, who's called Didymus, which just means twin, was one of the 12, but he was not with the other followers when Jesus came. So Jesus appeared to them, showed them, they all at this point now have finally reconciled and believed. They told him, we saw the Lord, which means master. Thomas said, that's a little hard to believe. I will personally have to see the nail holes and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, only then will I believe. A week later, the followers were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you, shalom. And then he said to Thomas, here, put your fingers here. Look at my hands, put your hand here in my side. Why don't you stop doubting and believe? And then Thomas said to him, my Lord, my master, and my God, not only are you my teacher, you are God. And Jesus said to him, you believe because you see me, but great blessings belong to people who believe without seeing me. So for you and I, 2,000 years after this conversation, do we need the proof? Do we need to be Thomas in this moment? Do we need to have Jesus appear here and have us put our fingers in the holes of his hands and in his feet and put our hands up into the wound of his side? Do we need for that to happen in order to believe? Because if that's our demand for Jesus, listen, understand, that won't even convince you. 
If you have, because doubt and belief are not things that you just feel, they're things that you choose. Do you know that studies show that 85% of your decisions are not rational? They're emotional. 85, you can look that up when you get home. What percentage of my decisions are based on logic? And all studies point to 80 to 85% of our decision making is based not on logic, but on emotion. But the most important things, I hope, that we choose to use our ability to make conscious, cognitive decisions on would be the things that shape us, that determine who we actually are and how we're gonna live our lives. Because I want you to hear this, if Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he said he would do and he did come back from the grave, that changes everything for everybody because he did it for, not for himself, not to start a world religion, but to reconcile the gap between God and man that was broken because of the covenant of living in obedience to God in perfection, in paradise, but in our way, we choose to do things our way. And it shattered that bridge and that sacrifice made all the difference in the world. What we celebrate on what we call Good Friday was the death of Christ. But really, I gotta be honest, that death would have meant nothing at all if Jesus hadn't have proved who he was three days later. And he didn't do it for three billion people, he did it for you. Because there will be more that reject and refuse. There will be more that disbelieve and doubt than there will be that accept and choose him. And he did it still. And he did it knowing who you are and everything that you've done. Not everything that you've done, but everything that you will do. And he desperately, unbelievably, without condition, loves you. And he loves you in a way that your spouse can't, that your kids can't. that your parents can't, that the person who loves you most in the world, they can't even love you that way. We're not built to love that way. We want to, we try to, but we're not, and we can't, but he does. And so whatever weird thing it is that you have right now that's holding you back from pulling the blanket, the weight of doubt and disbelief off of this story, I wanna encourage you in your heart and in your mind, put yourself in front of Jesus in that room. They felt joy and doubt at the same time. But eventually for them, the joy went out and they accepted what was impossible, what violated all logic and truth that they had ever known to that point. And I wanna tell you, this is an impossible story to believe. But don't go through life believing the moon landing didn't happen or the Holocaust didn't happen because they did. And Jesus came back from the grave for you. If I could believe for you, I would, but I can't. And so I wanna ask you in this moment with 
Everybody just taking a second and closing your eyes. There's nothing magical about this. It's just you getting a chance to be in this room alone with him. I heard the incredible story of a few people that shared with me today that it was on Easter Sunday, 20 years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, that they accepted the truth of who Jesus was for the first time and they became Christ followers on Easter Sunday. And I love that. I love that this moment can be that for them and it can be it for you. And it doesn't matter what anyone else in this room believes. This is about you and him right now. And if you want to begin a relationship with Christ who died for you, but came back and overcame death to demonstrate that he could overcome your failures, your disappointments, your sins, and the consequences of sin in your life. And you want to begin a relationship with him without anyone else looking around, would you just throw a hand up? And I promise no other shoe is going to fall. I'm not going to make you do anything weird. I'm not here to uncover you or expose you, make you feel awkward or uncomfortable. This is about you and him in this moment right now. Just slide a hand up and then you can put it back down. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Can every single person in here, because listen, I, I know this to be true. You come to a room full of a bunch of people you don't know with a guy standing on stage that you don't know at a church you've never been to before and you're like, there is no way in Hades I'm raising my hand because that dude's definitely gonna make me come up front or something. I want us to all just pray this out loud like every single one of us just raised our hands. Christ Jesus, I want to believe in you. So help me overcome my disbelief. I want to exercise my faith, but my faith or my doubt is at war with my faith. So I choose you today. I choose to believe in your death, and I choose to believe in your resurrection. And I want to begin a relationship with you today. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to know it's that simple. You don't have to go to a class. You don't have to go through some catechism. You don't have to go through some ritual. He is so close to you all the time and he's waited for this moment. The journey is beginning to know him and let him get closer to you. Let him into your relationships. Let him into your decision making. Let him into your, your fears and your worries. Let him into your dreams. Let him into your planning. Let him, he created you. Not only did he create you, it says that he came to give you life to its absolute fullest. And here at Summit we say to live your highest and best life in every part of your life. And that's my prayer for us all today. We believe for it, we receive it as if it's already happened. And I thank you, God, for changed and transformed lives. In Jesus' name, amen.